Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Will Make. It's based upon the lectionary readings for January 24th, 2021. Maybe, once upon a time, there was time. Time to dawdle, time to procrastinate, time to delay. Maybe, in that idyllic yesteryear, there was leisure to tell ourselves that we don't need to hurry, that we can afford to hang back, that someone else will come along and fix this mess, because we've got time. If such a once upon a time ever existed, and honestly, I doubt it did, it doesn't exist anymore. As our lectionary texts for this week make abundantly clear, the time is fulfilled. The time is now. In our reading from the Hebrew Bible, Jonah shouts a terrifying countdown across the streets of Nineveh. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul tells his readers to make swift and serious lifestyle changes because the appointed time has grown short and the present form of this world is passing away. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus arrives in Galilee with an urgent, no-nonsense message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Do we believe any of this? I mean, really. Deep in our hearts, when push comes to shove, do we believe that our faith makes urgent, time-sensitive claims on us? Or are we offended at the thought that our spiritual casualness has real-world consequences? Like many of you, I am still reeling from the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building, Specifically, I am reeling from the version of Christianity I saw on display among the mobsters, a version that saw no contradiction between Jesus saves slogans and lethally violent assaults against unarmed national leaders. As a progressive Christian who holds tolerance, open-mindedness, and religious diversity in high regard, I am having to take a hard step back. As in, the truth of the gospel is not, finally, an interpretive free-for-all, There are limits to tolerance, and those limits sometimes involve life and death. Jesus never said everything goes. If the message Jesus saves has been successfully co-opted to further nationalism, white supremacy, lawless violence, and hatred, then I must ask myself what my own spiritual dawdling has wrought. How have I failed to read the urgency of these times? When have I remained silent when I should have spoken? How have I allowed my commitment to open-mindedness to slide into complicity? Why have I minimized the uncomfortable truth that what we believe about God really, really matters? These are painful questions, and I tremble at the thought of taking them on in a sustained way. But we cannot afford to shy away from them any longer. The time has come for an honest reckoning with the truth and scope of the Christian story in the public square. Do I cherish the good news enough to share it, or don't I? In our gospel reading this week, Jesus invites four seasoned fishermen to leave their boats behind and follow him so that he can make them fish for people. I'll be honest, I'm not a big fan of Jesus' fishing metaphor. When I was a little girl, my father would take me along on occasional fishing trips, and I would invariably ruin them with my squeamishness. I'd cry over the fate of the worms we used for bait, 
I'd wince at the hooks that ensnared our prey. I'd beg my dad to release every sleek and silvery fish he caught because I couldn't bear to see the poor things flopping in a bucket. Hard as I tried to enjoy the sunlight on the water, the ocean breeze, the satisfaction of a good catch, I just couldn't get over what I saw as the essential violence at the center of fishing. A living creature offered up as bait, another living creature torn by a sharp hook or hauled out of its native element by net and left to die for lack of air. Eventually, my dad took the hint and my brother, who enjoys fishing to this day, took over as his seafaring companion. To be fair, my dislike for the metaphor isn't merely literal. When I was growing up, fishing as an analogy for evangelism was framed in a very particular and very arrogant way. The fish were all the world's non-evangelical souls doomed to hellfire because they had no one to catch them. Hooking them for Jesus, getting them to church, to youth group, to the altar, leading them to say the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus as their personal savior, insisting that only our version of Christianity held the truth, which would save them from damnation, was the only hope these poor fish had. So, was I ready to give up everything, leave all I know and love and follow Jesus? Was I willing to fish for lost souls? Or would I cling to my worldly nets, ignore Jesus' call, and let countless sinners burn in hell without any hope for salvation? These days, I wonder if my reticence and non-urgency when it comes to evangelism is an understandable but unhealthy overreaction to the version of spiritual fishing I grew up with. I don't believe I'm alone in this overreaction. Many of us in progressive Christian circles are so afraid of coming across as zealous, arrogant, disrespectful, or coercive that we avoid all public articulations of our faith. What would it be like to find a more nuanced way forward? What would it look like to return to Jesus' urgent invitation and learn how to fish for people in ways that are hospitable, loving, generative, and nourishing? Can we learn to preach repentance in the way Jesus preached it, not as condemnation, not as cultural erasure, not as supersessionism, but as good news? Two insights about Jesus' invitation might help us to address these questions. First, Jesus' call in this fishing story is specific and particular, rooted in the language, culture, and vocation his hearers know best. What metaphor would make more sense to four fishermen than the metaphor of fishing for people? Simon and Andrew understand the nuances of that metaphor in ways I never will. James and John know from years of hard-won experience what depths of patience, resilience, intuition, and artistry professional fishing require. These men know the tools of the trade, the limitations of their bodies, and the life-and-death importance of timing, humility, attentiveness, and discretion. Most of all, they know the water. They know how to respect it, how to listen to it, and how to bring forth its best for the good of all. They understand and respect the reciprocity at the heart of their enterprise. They know not to take more than they need. They know to care for the life cycles of the fish. They know to pay attention to the health and sustainability of the marine environment that nourishes them and their families. In other words, when Jesus calls these tried and true fishermen to follow him, they understand the call not as a directive to abandon their intelligence, intuition, and experience, but to bring the best of those gifts forward for the sake of a more beautiful and peaceable world, a world where all are nourished. 
The call is to become even more fully and freely themselves for the sake of God's kingdom. What can we learn from this? We can learn that we're not called to evangelize in the abstract. We're not invited to proclaim the good news in general, with no regard for how and where our words might land. We are not invited to peddle cheap and careless language. We are not commissioned to entrap or ensnare. Instead, we're called to pay close and loving attention to the people around us. We are called to know the water. We're called to live, move, speak, and fish in ways that are reciprocal, respectful, and mutually life-giving. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus at all, we have to do it in the highly specific particulars of the lives, communities, cultures, families, and vocations we find ourselves in. We have to trust that God prizes our intellects, our memories, our backgrounds, our educations, and our skills, and that God will multiply and bring to fruition everything we offer up in faith from the daily stuff of our lives. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you. This is a promise to cultivate, not to sever. It's a promise rooted in gentleness and respect, not in violence and coercion. It's a promise that when we dare to let go, the things we relinquish might be returned to us anew, enlivened in ways we could not have imagined on our own. Most importantly, it is a promise from God to us, not from us to God. As Barbara Brown Taylor so aptly puts it, Mark 1, 14-20 is a miracle story. Jesus calls and the four fishermen immediately follow. No hesitation, no questions asked. Is this because they're men of superhuman courage or prophetic foreknowledge? Of course not. These are the same guys who later in the gospel doubt, deny, and abandon Jesus. They are as fallible and as ordinary as the rest of us, and their own volition can't get them very far. No, they immediately follow Jesus because Jesus makes it possible for them to do so. This is not a story about us, Taylor writes. This is a story about God, and about God's ability not only to call us, but also to create us as people who are able to follow. Able to follow because we cannot take our eyes off the one who calls us, because he interests us more than anything else in our lives, because he seems to know what we hunger for, and because he seems to be food. What bothered me as a child, and bothers me still about the fishing metaphor, is that we so easily misinterpret it to mean that we have the power to hook or to catch others for God. We don't. We are not called to cajole, manipulate, trap, bully, or even persuade others to accept Jesus or join our religion. It is God alone who captures the imagination, God alone who makes the vision of the kingdom come alive in a human soul. What we must do is embody the vision in the particulars of our lives, reflecting into the water the profound beauty of who Christ is. The rest is up to God. The second insight about Jesus' fishing metaphor comes from the fascinating research of K.C. Hansen, who describes the socioeconomic and political context of Jesus' ministry in his article, The Galilean Fishing Economy and the Jesus Tradition. According to Hansen, the four fishermen in Mark's story aren't individual workers in a free enterprise system. By the time Jesus starts recruiting disciples, the fishing industry in Palestine is fully under the control of the Roman Empire. Caesar owns every body of water, and all fishing is state-regulated for the benefit of the urban elite. Fishermen can't obtain licenses to fish without joining a syndicate. 
Most of what they catch is exported, leaving local communities impoverished and hungry, deprived of the dietary staple they've depended on for centuries. And the Romans collect exorbitant taxes, levies, and tolls each time fish are sold. To catch even one fish outside of this exploitative system is illegal. In this context, what is Jesus saying when he invites a four fishermen to leave their nets behind and fish for people? In his book, Binding the Strong Man, theologian and activist Ched Myers argues that we narrow and distort the radical nature of this text when we interpret it as an invitation to issue altar calls. Jesus is not talking about filling pews or baptismal fonts. He is hearkening back to the Hebrew scriptures in which the hooking of fish is a euphemism for judgment upon the rich and the powerful. In other words, when Jesus asks Simon, Andrew, James, and John to fish for people, he is asking them to cast aside the existing social order of power, privilege, exploitation, and domination, and to help usher in God's kingdom, the kingdom of justice for the poor, mercy for the oppressed, and abundance for all. He is, in Meyer's words, inviting commoners to a fundamental reordering of socioeconomic relationships, to a new and God-honoring way of life that blesses all people. In the end, Jesus' proclamation is gospel, or good news. If it's not good news, it's not God. Evangelism becomes abusive when we individualize it for our own convenience, severing it from its broader social, economic, and cultural context. It becomes abusive when we forget respect and reciprocity, when we fish to boost our own egos in ways that are selfish and loveless. It becomes abusive when we focus on numbers, formulas, and institutions, forgetting that Jesus invites us to call people, people who are caught in the nets of exploitation, corruption, poverty, war, exile, homelessness, violence, disease, climate change, racism, and sexism. What might count as good news for people ensnared by such brokenness and cruelty? The four men immediately leave their nets to follow Jesus. Do we share their sense of urgency? Their sense that immediacy is required? In time, the disciples make the gospel their own, sharing its radical power through the details of their own lives and stories. What is the gospel according to you, here and now? What is your good news and how will you share it in the turbulent waters of your time and your place? Follow me and I will make you. This is a promise to lean into. Now. For Books This Week, Dan reviews The World, a brief introduction by Richard Haas. For almost 40 years, Richard Haas has distinguished himself as one of America's foreign policy experts. He earned his PhD at Oxford and has authored or edited 15 books. He's advised administrations in both parties. Since 2003, he has been president of the Nonpartisan Council on Foreign Relations. In a previous book called Foreign Policy Begins at Home, he argued that the biggest threats to America are domestic rather than international. We are overreaching and underperforming and need to focus on reforming ourselves rather than remaking other countries. House's newest book widens his lens in order to examine the entire world, albeit at a generalized level. It's like a good seminar 101 whose goal is increased global literacy. And global literacy among our citizenry is in short supply by his reckoning. 
That's unfortunate, particularly because the so-called Vegas rule, that what happens there stays there, does not apply in today's global world. Like it or not, globalization is not so much a theory as it is brutal reality. Haas's book is divided into four sections. Part 1 explores the history of the modern world and the rise of nation-states that began in the 17th century. Successive chapters review the years 1914 through 1945, the deadliest years in all of history. The Cold War era that avoided violent conflict, then the period that followed with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Part 2 reviews the six major regions of the world, Europe, East Asia and the Pacific, South Asia, the Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Part 3 examines nine important challenges in our globalized world, issues like terrorism, climate change, nuclear proliferation, etc. Part 4 explores the idea of world order, <clears throat> the most basic concept of international relations, as opposed to chaos and violence, and the things that make for stability, like alliances, treaties, and the concept of sovereignty. Haas has sacrificed depth for breadth in this book, but that's just fine given his expertise. The book is a brisk read. For example, part two gives you 15-page overviews of the six geographic regions of the world, likewise for part three, where you get 10-page chapters on nine important issues. The book concludes with 70 pages of where to go for more that suggest books, articles, websites, etc. for a deeper understanding of our globalized world. For films this week, Dan reviews In the Age of AI. Imagine a government program that required every house to have a barcode or to download compulsory software in order for your cell phone to work. Imagine software that knew if you were a good credit risk based upon how often you charge your phone battery. Imagine being able to predict breast cancer or how you will vote with near-perfect accuracy. And those 18-wheeler trucks with no drivers? That's already here. For those of us who are non-technical people, this two-hour PBS Frontline documentary is an excellent if terrifying introduction to the promise and perils of artificial intelligence. AI is here to stay, and like all technology, it is a one-way street of increasing complexity, power, and effectiveness. This movie considers AI through five stories. There is China's determination to lead the AI world by 2030. The second story explores the profoundly good news of how AI offers terrific solutions to urgent problems. A third chapter looks at Saginaw, Michigan, as one example of the massive disruptions in work caused by AI. Disruptions that are qualitatively different than in past history, and on a par with the advent of the steam engine, electricity, and the computer. The last two stories are the most troubling, Surveillance Capitalism and the Surveillance State. The one sliver of hope in all this is that in recent years, some of the leading tech insiders have become aware of the Frankenstein effect of what they have created, and they are beginning to sound the alarm. Lastly, as we honor the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. this week, an excerpt from his, from his speech, I Have a Dream. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 24th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.